0: our savior as we hear your word read and proclaimed, send your holy spirit to be our teacher of faith and truth and show us how we are called to live through jesus christ our lord amen well in this uh in the first week of this sermon series on what not what disciples believe but what disciples do in the first week we considered that discipleship has a cost And last week, we considered the first duty of disciples, that is, to seek the lost. Today, we consider our relationship as disciples of Jesus, our relationship with money and the things it can buy. Now, our Old Testament reading from the eighth chapter of Amos, that Old Testament reading may require some explaining for our modern ears to be able to hear its message. The prophet Amos is giving a warning to the wealthy Israelites, people who profess to be religious, but who just can't wait for the Sabbath to be over or the new moon to pass so they can get back to swindling their poor customers. Amos names three different ways. They're cheating the poor. First, they use a small ephah, an ephah it was a basket. So it's like taking a bushel basket that's not quite a bushel and say, ooh, you got a bushel of this now. That was one way, they were charging for the full one. The second thing they were doing, he says, using a heavier shekel, that is what was used for weights. It's basically like putting your thumb on the scale. You know, you pay for three pounds, but you're just getting two. It's kind of like a pound of coffee now is about 12 ounces, I think. Um, the third thing they're doing—they're selling the sweepings of the wheat. Uh, that would be kind of the equivalent of finding sawdust in your cereal. It's not really—it <laughs> wasn't really pure oats or whatever. Well, as one commentator wrote, they bamboozle, they bamboozle the widow and the orphan instead of protecting them. So now, listen for the word of God from Amos chapter eight. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and destroy the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over? Or when will, so that we may sell grain on the Sabbath, so we may offer wheat for sale, make the ephah smaller, enlarge the shekel, and deceive you with false balances in order to buy the needy for silver and the helpless for sandals and sell garbage as grain." Well, our gospel reading begins with one of the most mysterious parables Jesus told about a man about to be fired from Luke 16. Jesus also said to the disciples, a certain rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. He called the manager in and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me a report of your administration because You can no longer serve as my manager. The household manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is firing me as his manager? I'm not strong enough to dig and too proud to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from my manager position, people will welcome me into their houses. And one by one, the manager sent for each person owed who owed his master money. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager said to him, take your contract, sit down quickly and write 450 gallons. Then the manager said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, "A 1,000 bushels a week. Take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are the people who belong to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much. And the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or You will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. O Lord, may my words and may our thoughts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, that famous theologian, Mark Twain, Mark Twain once said, It ain't the parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do understand. (laughs) Well, today, we're going to consider some of both. That is, some parts that are pretty clear and some, not so much. When you read a parable like this, the story of the sneaky steward, don't you just think, what? as my children say. A quick reading will leave you saying, now let me get this straight. This guy knows he's going to get fired, so he goes to everyone who owes his boss money, cuts their bills big time so he can have their friendship and avoid starving when he's jobless. The boss find out finds out and says, good show. And then Jesus says, you guys need to take page out of this crooks book. What? Well, this story may even make you wonder, why did Jesus tell parables? Well, the scholar Marcus Borg has written that these short, provocative stories called parables are perception-altering forms of speech that invite the hearer into the world of the story to see something differently because of the story. What is the purpose of parables? Well, Borg says that Jesus gave us parables to invite hearers into a different way of seeing, of seeing God, of seeing themselves, of seeing life itself. Now most of the parables have a twist or surprise to them, as well as kind of a riddle quality. They do invite us in and change the way we see things. Surely the twist, the surprise and the this parable is that jesus has good things to say about this sneaky cunning manager you might even say if you think about it that in a way the sneaky steward was he was kind of a robin hood character since he was apparently stealing from the rich boss and giving to the poor customers well he was not so much accumulating wealth for himself He was investing in relationships to protect his future. And how does this parable, how does it change the way we see things? Well, I believe the answer to that question is in the ninth verse where Jesus said, "'I tell you, use worldly wealth "'to make friends for yourselves.'" Surely he did not mean for us to go around being crooked middle managers, cutting the bills owed to our bosses, You will get fired if you do that, by the way. (laughs) But look at the things that Jesus has said on his journey to Jerusalem. For example, just a couple of chapters back in Luke, when Jesus was invited to dine with a Pharisee, he told his host, when you host a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters and relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they'll invite you in return and that's gonna be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, they can't repay you. Instead, you'll be repaid when the just are resurrected. That is, use some of what you have to do something for the needy, the outcast, not just the hoi polloi, but those at the outer edges of society. Richard Rohr has written that when you get your who am I question right, all the what should I do questions tend to take care of themselves. The world will tell you to keep score by its rules. You know those rules. Whoever ends up with the most money, the most stuff, wins. Whoever has the most power, the most fame, wins. But if you define yourself by who you are in God, the world's score will lose its meaning. The world says your value is based on what you have. God says your value is based on being loved by God. Just yesterday I heard about a preacher who ended every service by saying, God loves you and there ain't a thing you can do about it. Except, Accept that love live into it and let it live in you. Accepting God's love in Christ, living into it by following the example of Jesus and letting that love live in you by loving God and loving all of God's children. That has nothing to do with that thirst, that hunger for more and more and more and maybe some more. That need, that addiction all greed you see my fellow disciples you and i we cannot serve both god and greed Now, as good presbyterians most of us are, are pretty sure that there's there's a list of sins we don't have to worry about and idolatry would be one of the ones on that list none of us is likely to make statues of clay or wood or bronze and name it a god and bow down to it. But, you know, that's just the movie. That's the movie version of idolatry. Real-life idolatry is whenever we put something, anything, above God. If we love money and the stuff it can buy more than God, we have bought into the idol of worship and wasted our life. I've heard that St. Augustine said that God gave us people to bless and things to use. And too often we get those things mixed up. I often, as you know, I often start sermons with a question, but today I'm going to end with one. What do you love first, best, most? Go out into the world in peace. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus make you complete in everything good so that you may do God's will working among us that which is pleasing in God's sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory now and forevermore.